Welcome once again to everyone around the world to our podcast, Pitchside Experts, and into the middle of May, and things are easing in some countries around the world. I've been joined by my colleagues Tom Moody from Australia, Western Australia to be precise, and Freddie Weil, of course, situated in the UK. Let me start with you, Tom. Hello, how are you? How are things going? Yeah, very well, thanks, Bish. You know, thankfully here in Australia, we're uh, slowly moving back to, you know, something that's close to normal. We've still got a fair way to go, but uh, certainly um, we've been uh, pretty lucky in in certainly Perth, West Australia. Um, we're uh, out socialising and, and life is getting close to, uh, to where it was a few months ago. And the baby, of course, Freddie in, in the UK. How are you doing and how are things at home? Uh, yeah, I'm good, thanks. I'm good. As good as, good as can be. Uh, and yeah, unfortunately, things aren't going quite as well here as, as they are down under with moods. But we are beginning to see some changes to our daily lives. We're allowed outside a little bit more often, but um, the, the sort of easing of restrictions is happening a little bit more slowly uh, here in the UK, where the situation hasn't been quite as good. But um, the weather is, is excellent. It's classic that when we can't be playing any cricket, there's some lovely weather in the UK, but that's helping a few of us get through it at least. Um, so there's light at the end of the tunnel, I think. Yeah, that, that seems to be the case here in Trinidad. We have had a really good three weeks where no new cases have come up and uh, phases of lockdown are being opened up. Um, so that's a real positive sign. Different islands in the Caribbean though have different measures in place, so it's hard to speak for the Caribbean region as a whole. So I'll avoid doing that. But still around the world, you know, every time we started this podcast, we've had a lot of empathy with everything that's been going on for everyone, job losses, uh, illnesses, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I think the reality of sport as well, Tom and Freddie and for our listeners, the reality is when we talk about sport, I want to stop apologizing for it because sport in itself is an industry. And while heartbreakingly businesses have closed people have lost their jobs etc there are so many people involved in sport not least the players the cameramen the sound engineers the technicians uh, those around the peripheries who also have mortgages who also have car payments who also have kids that they need to look after and look after their family as well so i think from that perspective sport is a significant factor and that's why we're hoping in part that it restarts soon. Yeah, look, absolutely. You've put that very well, actually, Bish. You know, a lot of people um, so often refer to elite sport, the entertainment of uh, elite sport, whether that be cricket or any other sport, um, and they focus just on the performers and and they see, well, they're okay. They're all getting paid huge amounts of money, and and there's a little people. It's, there's a number of people that would be envious of that, and and be thinking, well, they're okay, sort of shooting off their various Instagram accounts with what they're doing, and jumping on TikToks and Twitter, and sort of sharing sharing their moments of lockdown, where it's it's so different for so many people. The the other thing that uh, I think's be has become very relevant is how important sport is. I'm not saying for everyone, but how mm. important it is to just keep the, 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 I suppose, the adrenaline of competition flowing through the community. You know, people are desperately missing 
whether it be their favourite team that they follow or their favourite player that they follow and the highs and the lows that they dish up to them every weekend, whether it be the weekend sport? Yeah, I know, Freddie, you want to come in here, but, but I think it's just the, the whole mental health aspect, the, the escapism from the daily routines and problems of life that sports offers, sports offer that sort of, not misdirection, but a sense to get yourself away from some aspects of life itself. And I think that's very important, Freddie. If we look back to times when sport has been interrupted during World War I, uh, and particularly during the Second World War, sports and by extension cricket was on hiatus for years. I mean, there were years in some country without any first class or international cricket. We hope that that is not the scenario that is going to take place. And what does it mean, in effect, World War Three, war without guns? Well, yeah, I mean, this is you know the the this hiatus of sport that's going on now is unprecedented um, since 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 wartime, really. Um, and, and you're right, you know, I think that sport does offer an escape for people in day to day life. And, and, I, and I think that um, it's become that's become very apparent during this period when we've not had any um, people have been at home, you know, and, and just, you know, even us guys sitting together recording this podcast. I remember when we sat down and said, it, you know, it'd be a nice, you know, just a nice 45 minute weekly chat about cricket to keep people sort of occupied and distracted. And, you know, that barely scratches the surface of, of what sport does more generally to people around the world and offers them you know, escape every week, you know, people looking forward to a football match every Saturday and then on Wednesday mm. or, you know, whether it's cricket matches, looking forward to the first ball being bowled on a Thursday Thursday morning. Um, so, yeah, no, it, it has a, a huge role in society, um, both, as you said, most importantly, sort of a, a, as an industry, but then as an escape as well for, for millions of people around the world. Yeah, a number of players have talked on, you talk about David Warner starring on TikTok, etc. Kevin Peterson, uh, former player, uh, having his Instagram post about uh, his new bicycle, his new toy. Uh, I know a few of the players in the Caribbean have said, look, I'm, I'm not sure what I'm aiming for. I don't know how much longer I can train, whether I have a net in my yard or, or I'm doing gym work in the backyard, etc., cetera, et cetera. Um, How have players, in your views and, and in your experience where you are, been keeping themselves in touch? Yeah, look, from my understanding uh, all uh, coaches at first class level and international level have had regular contact with their players as a group and also individually mm. each player will have specific programs that are, are um, uh, that are run obviously remotely um, players as we have had lockdown easing have started to be able to train uh, more with a partner or partners now um, so other players that may be in the same region as what uh, what they are um, and it was interesting I was having a, a conversation uh, with Justin Langer the Australian coach uh, late last week and he said it's going to be very interesting and he's quite looking forward to seeing his players back uh, all in one just uh, nothing more than to see how they have coped with the challenge of having to motivate themselves. And he's expecting that they'll be fitter than they've ever been because they've had so much time to get it right, so much time to reflect and concentrate on areas where they, they need to improve. Another point as well is 
worth mentioning too and, and sort of touched on it there is um, players obviously being you talked about coaching regimes and fitness regimes sort of being done remotely um, and players talking on Instagram live and stuff it just made me think if this had happened even 30 years ago it would have been a very very different challenge you know the, the internet and technology has has enabled players to to cope with this um well players everyone more generally but we're talking here specifically about cricket um players to cope with this in in a way that would have been yeah it would have been impossible um in the past you've seen kp having a chat with with coley on instagram and, and, and all these kind of things just people being able to stay in touch um but then you know i've seen um fitness programs distributed amongst amongst players and and everyone able to sort of i'm sure you know being able to stay on top of what everyone's doing and and, and staying fit and staying healthy is, is managing that now is easier than it would have been in the past. And I think that that's something I suppose we should be thankful for. Yeah, I think, I think one area, if I could sort of add to, to that, that will be a real question is the, the fine tuning of the, the skill. Mm. Um, you know, at the end of the day, cricket is a skill based uh, sport. Yes, you need to be physically robust and, you, you need to uh, be resilient uh, both physically and mentally, but just the the, the, the subtle touch that's required uh, for batsmen, for bowlers, for slip fielders, for cover fielders um, is is quite unique where it only comes with repetition and the chance to do that, whether it be in a net environment, in a, in a, a match simulation environment, uh, but it certainly can't be done on TikTok or on Instagram or in someone's backyard. So I think what we'll see when we do see the, 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 the doors of our game open up again is maybe just that being the clumsiest part of our game to reset and get to where we are used to seeing it. Um, but again, we're talking at the very elite level I can't see that lasting very long because I think players will very quickly, uh, you know, move into um, what they're used to doing and doing it very well. I, I wonder as well, you know, it's interesting thought that when players are playing all the time and there's the churn of the schedule, you know, some players often be accused of tweaking and fiddling around with their techniques too much. I wonder whether when we come back, it'll be interesting to see whether some players just more naturally go back into things that they do instinctively. Um, you know, this sort of constant tweaking with techniques that some players do. It might be that the break away from the game, someone, you know, a batsman or a bowler has been you know, struggling with his front arm or his back lift or whatever, just comes back and, and does something naturally. And, and maybe we'll see that as well. So there's a, you're right. I think the technical challenges are going to be are going to be more um, pertinent than fit, physical ones. Uh, you're, you know, what, what Justin Langer said is, is probably right. Their players are going to be very fit. Um, technically, it'll be fascinating to see how, how, how players adapt when they do return. We'll, pre we'll preface every dis discussion today by saying that we're not trying to be scientists, we're not trying to be medical personnel, uh, we're not trying to overrule those, we're just speculating as to what players will do, what the forms of the game will look like when they come back, whenever that is. So I want to get that clear that we're not trying to be uh, medical personnel or scientists. Just casting that whole thing forward and I mean, the whole concept of players now getting enough rest as a broadcaster, let me tell you, I am looking at this in a way that to finally have some downtime to spend with family where we haven't had, because the calendar has been so congested over the last two or three years, 
there's been a bonus in this for me physically. So I can imagine the players, many of those multiple format players would have relished a little freshening up. Can we cast our minds forward now as to perhaps when there might might be a restart and what that will look like? Because the West Indies have been in discussions with the ECB about having their series played in July in a biosecure environment. For those new to the term biosecure, it means isolating the players and having that sort of barricade around them as they play amongst other things, no outside interference or minimal outside interference. I've been running my mind past that. And that will be such a challenge if a player or group have to first get flights to fly into the UK, Freddie, to your homeland, um, probably be under isolation for a couple of weeks, which has been the standard procedure. And knowing sportsmen, that in itself is a challenge. And then for a test match series, not a couple of one-day games, but for a protracted period of time, have to ensure that I suppose communi- not communication is the wrong word, but contact with John public is kept to a minimum. That is a mindset shift that is going to be challenging. Well, yeah, I mean, logistically, it you know, boggles the mind really to think how you know, the number of things that have got to be adhered to to ensure that something like that is possible. Um, this weekend, we obviously saw the return of Bundesliga football in Germany. They've followed a similar um, protocol there, um, showing, I suppose, that it is possible. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- th- there are huge challenges in, in, in enacting something like that. Um, but as you said at the top of the show, and, and I think it's worth stressing, people might sort of say, you know, you know, why go to such lengths to get these games on? That there are benefits to doing it. I think, firstly, as you said, the industry, millions of, of people, thousands of people's jobs. Uh, and livelihoods depend on, on on the resumption of cricket and resumption of sport more generally. And then also it does have a, a role to play sort of socially and culturally in our society. So I think there is an argument for getting it back on and for going to these lengths to do it. But it is a huge challenge. And when it does happen, you're right, it will present challenges to the players themselves from a mental perspective. You know, how will performance be affected by, by this strange new reality? I don't think we can really expect players to be performing at their peak, um, you know, when they do return. Yeah, look, I, I I sort of beg to differ a little bit. I, I think that we have already been tested uh, to a certain extent with something that has come, come from complete left field, where if we had this discussion six months ago to say that we're all going to be in lockdown and be pretty much shut in our own homes with our families and, you know, only allowed to visit the shops once a week and and uh, do very essential things outside of your own home, it, it, you would have been laughed at. And I mm. think I think the various communities around the world have made the necessary sacrifices and adjustments because you have to. And I think as as a race, we're pretty resilient and, and adaptable once we're given that direction. And I think cricket is in a, in a situation where... There's no choice but that direction. And I think the initiative that the ECB and West Indies cricket and Pakistan uh, cricket, because I think they're also in the same discussions, um, are, I think, very positive. And I think players will adapt 
because there's no other choice. They'll, you know, players are used to being uh, given guidance and following that guidance and delivering under pressure um, in that situation. I just think that this is just another one of those challenges for a playing group. You can guarantee that in these various hubs where test matches are going to be played in the UK, that there's going to be all sorts of uh, positive distractions within those hubs. So players aren't really subject to the cricket field, the net area and room 304, which is their own personal space where they sleep. You know, I'm sure there's going to be you know, little entertainment areas where there may be some pool tables, some ping pong tables, some some light entertainment. Uh, so you try to create a positive experience for everyone, both on the field and off the field. Does that mean, though, because I, I remember times in my own playing career back in the day where if we would tour, uh, like specifically, say, a tour to, to Pakistan, uh, where we went into the smaller venues where there weren't the big shopping centers as there are today. Um, you play a lot of table tennis. You play a lot of maybe one or two other board games or whatever. But at times you would be able to to say, look, I've seen enough of this bloke uh, for this past week. Um, <laughs> Can you name one? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it doesn't come to mind, but I can think of a number of occasions just vaguely where guys have said, I've had enough of, we had roommates in those days, or I've had enough of playing tennis with this bloke or chess or draft with that bloke. Um, but you would still, after a week, be able to go to a bigger venue yeah. and be able to, let's say, visit a shopping center, for example, just to have some retail therapy. Maybe when cricket comes back, one of the things that it might look like, there may have to be an organized recreational outing occasionally where players maybe have a greater blanket of security around them just to break the monotony. If Pakistan is on tour for four weeks, three weeks, that's a long time just to be in and amongst yourself. So I do agree that it must, I'd like to see it happen. The tours, I do agree that players are adaptable, but that in itself is a huge leap and it depends on the personality of the players. So I'd, look, It'll take some strength of mind. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's that hard though. I, I, I think your, um, uh, you're sort of thinking it, you know, very much holistically, which is which is absolutely the right thing to do. But th this is this is a time of need. This is a time where the game uh, needs people to step mm. up uh, right. in very unique situations where not only um, does the game need it, but their own home boards need it to keep yeah. revenue um, sort of coming in or reigniting? Uh, as we as we talked about earlier on, there's many people that are relying on the, the game restarting. Three four weeks, you know, in a lockdown environment at three venues, I don't think that's tough. I think that's exciting. I think it'd be an incredible experience. I'd love to be personally involved in it. Because it's new, it's different, 
how can we make this work? I'm thinking from a coach's perspective, how am I going to make this work? How am I going to get this squad of 15 players I have here on this test tour in the UK totally switched on? How am I going to get a team environment where we actually enjoy turning up at breakfast together instead of sort of thinking, oh, gosh, I don't want to sit next to Bish again. He drives me mad. You know, <laughs> have that situation where it's, it, it's, it's an experience that's a memorable experience instead of it just turning up to play another day's play, another game at another venue. To me, there's more to be had here. This is a, this is a bigger experience that we should be sharing. I'm buying that. I'm buying that. Freddie? Okay, you're selected. You're in. <laughs> yeah, well, no, yeah, it's, it, it, you, you've sold that very well. And then you, you make an excellent point about the, the broader meaning of, of, of uh, matches when they do resume, not only um, here in England for, for that mooted tour with Pakistan and West Indies, but more generally, um, you know, the, the, there is a bigger picture at play here. And I think that that's worth, something worth talking about as well. You know, what will the game... You know, in the last 15 years or so, and we spoke about this in our first episode with the arrival of T20, the game has changed massively, you know, beyond recognition in the last two decades. This pause now almost gives us time to reflect and, and, and think, and the game itself is having to maybe realign its priorities. But when it does return, um, you know, are we going to see a very different game in terms of the way that the, the calendar is structured, the schedule, the different formats. You know, we've spoken about test cricket being put under pressure by T20 even before COVID. Uh, and now maybe when we return, are we going to see that accentuated and accelerated? Because, you know, for many teams, test cricket doesn't make um, as much money as shorter forms of cricket. And, and, and are we going to see some of the financially weaker nations uh, play less test cricket maybe in, in years to come because it makes them less money and because now you know they're squeezed and strapped for cash in a way that they or you know, to, to an even greater extent so I think that longer term you know we're discussing there the practicalities of a short-term return I think there are some massive massive questions and again we're stressed we're speculating here about you know how does the game come out the other side of this and what does it look like I let, let me, I want to eliminate one portion of that. And what have we learned? What did we learn from the Australia New Zealand games that were played just prior to the COVID lockdown in Australia, which the series which was abandoned after a couple of games? We saw players playing in front of an absent crowd, almost an empty house. Now, for television, probably doesn't look that great on the screen. But I, if again, I'll go back to an experience that I had. I remember touring the subcontinent in the 90s, and I was trying to remember which facilities they were. But I remember looking up into the stand with Kurt Lee Ambrose and saying, all they've got in this ground for this international game, I think it was a test match, were policemen. There was no one else in the ground. But we were still playing like a house on fire. We were still playing like our lives depended on it. Um, we play first-class cricket, and there are very rarely crowds at first-class matches around many venues. And players still play for the championship. They still play for the trophy. So in terms of the absence of, of a crowd, at least temporarily when we restart, I don't think that that should be too big a mindset 
or shift of mindset for players. I think they'll definitely adapt to that in a way that is an easier transition. Yeah, I'd agree. I don't think that the crowds are an issue. And I think because of a lot of the venues that uh, these international teams play at, you can get between 30,000 to to 100,000 in some cases at the venue. You know, I, I can let's look at the MCG, for instance, or Kolkata, Eden Gardens, where you can get 100,000. You can easily... Uh, have a situation where you've got 25,000 people there. So one quarter of that crowd can be can be put into that stadium in a safe uh, a safe way where you know distancing, Physical distancing. Is, yeah is respected. You so you're creating some atmosphere and it's a way to drip feed our the spectators back into our game. It may start with 5,000. It may end up hopefully back at a hundred thousand, but you know there is a way we can stage it. But from a playing perspective, it's not an issue, Bish. You can't tell me that if you're playing a Test match or an ODI or a T20 match when you're playing against another country and you've got Bowler X running in trying to rip your off stump out the ground or knock your head off your shoulders, that you really notice there's a crowd. Players don't notice the crowd when they're in the heat of the battle. Yes, it creates atmosphere. Yes, it creates dark drama for the for the for the long story. But really, for that moment of that ball and what happens at that moment, it, it doesn't matter a, a huge amount. Um, certainly, from a from a production point of view, when it comes to television, it comes to radio comes to all those types of things and both you and I Bish have worked in environments where you've got uh, from a commentary point of view where you've got a packed house against having an empty house and they're very two different environments to actually commentate on the game and certainly a packed house it's easier to commentate because you you ride the wave of the emotion of the of, of the crowd and and the, and the noise is that fair to say yeah I think broadcasting is is, is going to be very much challenged uh, with the lifting and, and the undulation of, of the tones and all of that. But I think that that is that is a, that is a smaller part of, of the whole thing. But I, I do think there'll need to be a shift in the way that we do that, Moods. Um, I think to Freddie's point as well is not jumping the line too quickly. That whole concept of who finances, what's the cash cow for the game is an interesting thought line as to whether the smaller nations, the Zimbabwe's, the Ireland's, the Afghanistan's, maybe to a lesser extent, the West Indies, how they will view test cricket as a board. That is above my pay grade to understand the economics of that situation. Yeah, look, there's always been that discussion. You know, there's everyone is clamouring to play as many test matches or ODIs or T20s against India um, because they are the modern-day powerhouse both on the field and also off the field uh, financially. So I know Australia, for instance, are due to play India this Australian summer in four test matches, and they're now in discussions with them to try to somehow make that five and the only reason they're doing that is for financial reasons yes it'll be 
great to have five test matches against one of the best teams, or if not, arguably the best team um, in 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 world cricket over the last couple of years. But the decision is based not around that. It's based around the numbers. It's based around what that means financially for both those cricket boards. I, th- I think, and I think again, it's. I think what we may see is you know that um, example you just gave is is, is probably a microcosm of how many boards are going to be feeling. As you said, there's going to be a desire to play against India, but not only against India, but against Australia and against England. The, the, the countries whereby the tours that are more profitable will be more in demand. And I think broadly what we'll see is essentially uh, an accentuation of what already exists. So over the last 10, 10 to 15 years, um, we've seen more and more cricket played. Um, we've seen a demand for more and more cricket played against the big three. Um, as we've seen lots of, you know, we've seen a lot of series between Australia, England and India in recent times. Um, we've seen more short form cricket. I imagine that a lot of these trends will just be perpetuated because they are driven largely by, by, by finances. And again, it's worth saying, you know, we're coming at this from, you know, we're all we're all involved in the game in, in certain perspectives, but we're not we're not administrators. And they're the guys who, you know, will have the balance sheets in front of them. But I think at least my understanding of, of, of the way that the game has been run in, in the last you know, 10 to 15 years, I imagine it, as I said, those trends will probably be um, exaggerated um, because of the fact that pressure is going to be placed on, on on finances because the game has stopped for 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 what the moment has been a couple of months and potentially going to be six months maybe longer and that's going to have significant repercussions for how teams or how um, boards go about running the game um, but, and, and I think you know just, we've got to- not, not to cut you there but you have to you have to speak about that in the context of the World Test Championships in the context of rankings heading into the various World Cups. All of that has to be a caveat around that. Well, of course. And they don't mention, you know, the ICC last few years have put a lot of effort into not only the World Test Championship, but the One Day Championship has also started. Um, and, and I think, you know, seeing you know, how, how the ICC um, respond to that um, and whether those um, systems still remain in place, I think is, is unlikely. And we, we might see change in that area. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I, it's a good point you make and a good point you both make, actually, Bish, because we forget that, you know, in the background that there are those important issues that, that the ICC have in place, Test Championship, which is, uh, I think, due to be played next year, isn't it? At some stage? Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's in June next year, isn't it? Right. Uh, in 2021. Um, obviously, the ODI rankings, but is there is there a more of a, a immediate need to to bring revenue back into the game, uh, and that's where franchise cricket is going to play, I think, an important role for the game, because that's where a lot of revenue is generated through television, through independent uh, ownership, people that have you know, are bringing different revenue into our game, um, apart from it just being, you know, directly from the cricket board itself. Um, you know, there is already been talk around, I know we've had the 100 ball in the UK uh, postponed this year to 2021, but there's already been talk that there's a, a couple of IPL franchises that are showing interest in buying 
those teams. Now, that would be an, an immediate injection of revenue into the coffers of the English cricket board. So are cricket boards going to have to think a lot more creatively? Are the ICC going to have to take a slight back seat with regards to what they did have in place? Because we've been totally uh, blindsided by this coronavirus. I think just one one quick point to make on the back of your comment about the 100. Um, a lot of um, change in cricket, the resistance to it often exists from a purist standpoint or for you know, the idea of preserving things that seem to be traditional. And often that's, you know, around the, the test game, that's often one of the things that comes up is, you know, protecting the oldest form of the game. Um, I think what we'll see is, is those concerns around or, or sort of um, those reasons will lose weight in comparison to, to other reasons uh, around finances and, and around the need, as Moose sort of alluded to there, to inject cash into the game. In, in the UK, one of the big, you know, the private ownership of, of uh, the 100 teams or of domestic teams has been mentioned before, and it's often been shot down um, due, I think, in part to a need to sort of protect the status quo or, or the, the systems that have been in place. Now, that is harder, I think, to defend in a time of crisis. And, and I think we may see... Um, more bold uh, administrative decisions taken as a result. So you're talking there about the potential reshaping of what was just reshaped. Um, that, that's, yeah. that, that is fascinating to me because context is very important for players. And that's what we've discussed over the last couple of decades. Find a context so that uh, test match cricket is not just on a bilateral basis. So if we're talking... Freddie, and I think we, in our pre-discussions we talked about, and you alluded to maybe the fact that there might be an elimination of one or two of the smaller test nations. I hope that that's not the case. As financially feasible as it is, um, I wonder how much test cricket still means to someone from Zimbabwe, uh, how much um, Ireland wanted so badly to get into international and test match cricket in particular. It, it would be sad for me if these nations were to lose. There was a poll the other day in the biggest nation of India, and so many of the pollsters talked about test cricket being of the highest value. I think that would have been a similar thought for many others in the smaller nations. And to lose that as a traditionalist, as I said before in our preamble, that would be hard to stomach. Yeah, look, it would be. And I, I I agree with where you're coming from, but the reality is Zimbabwe playing a Boxing Day Test match in Australia is not going to mm. work financially during right. the during the days where Cricket Australia were financially secure against where they're potentially going to be in six months' time or twelve months' time. And I'm just using Zimbabwe as an example, but you're not going to get on day one a Boxing Day test match, 70 to 80,000 people turning up, you know, sadly, if that's the scenario. And again, we're just speculating. We're not saying that this is the way it's going to go for sure. We're just speculating. I just want to go turn the clock back there to what you said about crowds, Mooch. And I forgot this point. I remember listening to Joffrey Archer the other day, and he said he is so driven, Freddie, and you might remember this statement, by the crowds, the energy that the crowds give to players at certain points in time. For someone like myself, and maybe to Moods, it didn't make a difference, but we're not every man. Um, just to revisit that, 
is there going to be a situation where we need to sort of improvise to what extent of having noise in the stadium just briefly before we move on to the other point? Yeah, yeah. well, it, it's certainly something that's already been discussed. I think um, it's been discussed in multiple sports, having sort of artificial crowd noise there. I, think I was listening to um, a chat with uh, Venki Mysore, who's um, CEO of KKR, who he was discussing sure. similar things as well with, um, you know, a lot more sort of um, using technology essentially to recreate the atmosphere that, that, that we've lost or will lose if fans aren't in the ground. And um, I suppose it goes back to a point that I made earlier. We are fortunate in, in many respects. We live in an era whereby technology perhaps offers some solutions to these to these problems. Um, and particularly from you know a broadcasting standpoint, um, I, I think you touched on it there. You know, empty stadiums and, and, and lack of atmosphere will create quite a different product. And there are ways around that. And I think you know, I think that I expect administrators to be creative with that in an effort to try and sort of bridge that gap. How does this affect women's cricket? Yeah, well, that that to me is you know a real uh, concern because we've seen uh, the women's game grow so dramatically over the past, I think, ten years would be a fair uh, time to you know, and particularly the last three years uh, where it reached its pinnacle just recently, Bish, you know, at the MCG when you know I think it was eighty six thousand people turned up mm. to the World Cup final, um, you know it. It, would, it will affect women's cricket because at the moment, women's cricket relies heavily on the men's game and what's generated financially out of the men's game. Um, but I hope that whatever measures are taken, that they're, they're taken with serious consideration because you don't want to, you don't want to stem... The, the tidal wave that's, that, that's being generated in women's sport because what we've seen, I certainly have noticed here in Australia, is the, the engagement of uh, young uh, boys and girls because of the women's game and the growth of women's game, it's been, it's been amazing to watch. And to suddenly pull the carpet from underneath that, it'd be nearly like taking 20 steps forward and then you know jumping back another 30. Yeah, and, and I mean, I don't, you know, just think, just you know, listening to you talk there, I don't envy the, the decision makers in this situation because it's hugely difficult. Um, as you said, the women's game has relied on on the men's game for for, for uh, a long time, but it is beginning, as you said, in the last couple of years, to make great strides, particularly down under in Australia. But I think, um, you know, India's rise in the last couple of years has been fantastic. There's been suggestions of a women's IPL. Obviously, we saw some. Um, uh, some matches at the end of the, last year's IPL exhibition games um, played by women last year at the end of the IPL and you wonder or fear I suppose for, for whether um, ideas or, or prospects of a women's IPL will be put on the back burner and I guess it's you know it's about finding the balance between continuing the good work that has been done whilst also protecting what already exists and it's an unenviable challenge. And it, it, it's it's not difficult for me to conceptualize, and I might be proven wrong here, if this limited or abbreviated uh, form of international cricket goes on for a while, are the big three, and particularly India with its wealth, and they're not unaffected India, to, to be absolutely certain, they're not going to be unaffected by this, but are the big three at a, a, a significant advantage in terms of their preparation of players, their ability to run domestic cricket on a big enough scale 
to prepare their players better for the international battles than, say, uh, the West Indies who are struggling or the Zimbabwe's who are struggling. Um, the depth of talent that India, England, Australia have significantly more than, say, a New Zealand who always generally do a lot better than people expect of them. How, how significant of an advantage do these countries have? Yeah, look, I, I think that there is going to be that advantage, but it's only going to be an early advantage, uh, Bish. The, right. the way I see it is that they might, they might, uh, you know, get out of the blocks quickly, but, um, you know, every other playing nation will catch up um, pretty quickly. That's assuming we manage to get back to normality. Right. How long we are going to be in uh, a, a sort of a clouded game uh, with regards to restrictions. Uh, those three will pull away even further because they mm. are, as you quite rightly say, a little bit more robust and their systems are a little bit more robust. But um, I'm sort of hoping that, uh, you know, it's not going to be um, a, a, a clouded uh, game for for too long, and everyone's going to be back up, and uh, both players and public are going to be enjoying our game once again. Worth worth saying as well. I think you know the some of the nations, so not the big three nations, but um, some of the T20 leagues that have grown um, in the last few years uh, come to mind: the PSL, um, the CPL, um, even the Bangladesh Premier League, and then in South Africa, the, the last couple of seasons of the Mzansi Super League. There have been a uh, I suppose the groundwork there uh, and, and the, the work that those leagues have done to help expose, I suppose, a little bit more depth of talent in those regions um, should hopefully stand those nations in better stead than had they not existed. Uh, I think, you know, um, all, all three of us know of the benefits of those leagues um, that they can bring with, with overseas players and elite coaches rubbing shoulders with, with young domestic talent. You know, those leagues still exist and, and have existed over the last couple of years. And I'd hope um, that they will, uh, yeah, I think that, that I suppose they'll give a little bit more depth to the talent pool. And actually, you know, I think, you know, the, the CPL, for example, this year, um, let's say hypothetically, it's, uh, you know, I think we've seen the player retentions for that. Let's say it's a domestic only tournament. You might have the opportunity there for a lot of Caribbean players to to emerge. And, and you know, there are benefits there, you, we, you know, that, there could be benefits to this, um, you know, in a way that it tests the, the depth of talent in a way that it doesn't normally happen um, when the league is, is, is typically run. So there are ways around it. And you'd hope that there are frameworks in place for those for those nations that I've mentioned to, to potentially um, support themselves better in the years to come. And I think also people, are, whether it be supporters, whether it be players, whether it be administrators, will have a a lot more of an open mind and accepting of what the consequences are or the changes, short-term changes are to restart the game. You know, it's not a big issue, you know, really. For the Caribbean Premier League, for example, the schedule to be played in August, September, for that to be a domestic tournament, that's, that's no big deal. Let's just have the tournament. I think that's the priority, is making sure that we have the game up and running again in the Caribbean. And you're quite right. Who knows who will be unearthed? It may be another Hetmeyer or a Nicholas Poran that jumps out of out of nowhere. You know, that's the exciting part about, you know, these domestic leagues. 
yeah, first class cricket as well, because I think West Indies are desperately in need of finding some test batsmen, and that's the the whole gravitas, the importance of the first class circuit with the T20 team. Uh, looks to be one in potentially good shape. And if the T20 World Cup, which is carded for October, November, as we're hearing whispers gets postponed, uh, a number of players will be affected on that level as well. I can think of Dwayne Bravo, who would probably be 37 if by the time that next World Cup, T20 World Cup comes around, Kyron Pollard might be 34. There are a number of players around the world who are desperately looking forward to this not being postponed uh, too far into the future. And that's another important thing about restarting the game, another aspect of it. Um, For the West Indies, if it happens, it could possibly be a good thing. I was discussing earlier this week that if there is very little cricket leading up to that October-November frame time, and then you just go straight into a World Cup, the West Indies would have needed to have given a lot of game time to guys like Fabian Allen, Nicholas Buran, to cement O'Shane Thomas, to fine-tune their skills and get things together. So there are advantages and disadvantages to that. Yeah, look, I, I uh, again, I think the, the, the nations that have the, the biggest support structure... Uh, infrastructure in place will have that advantage. Mm. Uh, there's no doubt because they'll have the wheels, you know, certainly in motion a lot earlier, preparing players both physically and mentally. Um, yeah, and just just the point that you're talking about with the West Indies that, that you know you're basically saying you you don't think they're quite right or quite ready in the current time at time frame if it is starting in October you would think that the West Indies cricket team would be a more of a competitive team if they could buy another six months. Yeah, I think I think they'd be, if things had gone normally, I really do think that they'd be a, a serious competitor in that top four. I mean, Australia playing have been playing some good T20 cricket, England, um, and then you've got India and New Zealand as well. But the West Indies needed that game time. So however it goes, um, I think if they can have that extra time to give an acclimation period, acclimatization period to some of those fringe players, I think they'd be quite a superb team entering that tournament, to be, to be honest with you. Um, I don't know if we can identify maybe one or two more players around the world for whom the resumption of international cricket is significant. Yeah, well, I mean, there are a few names that stand out. And I mean, the, 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 I suppose there are players at different ends of their career, and you just touched on their how um, in many respects a little bit of a delay to tournaments might help some younger players. At the other end of the spectrum, um, you touched on a couple of them there. There are older players for whom or who are uh, have been approaching the end of their career and you wonder whether they will come back at all after this. Obviously there you mentioned Bravo, but Chris Gale is another one. Um, you know, the greatest C20 batsman of all time, I think by many people's estimations, you know, he, he has been struggling a little bit of late. Will he return? Um, and then another huge name, perhaps the biggest of all, um, that, that we I think we'll have to mention is MS Dhoni. Um, obviously, Dhoni's been hasn't played since India's semi-final defeat in the World Cup last year. Um, he was looking towards this IPL um, as making a case to come back for the T20 World Cup. But we've seen uh, the emergence of KL Rahul and Rishabh Pant, um, particularly over the last 18 months, 24 months put pressure on him and his place. And, and you, you have to ask yourself, will he ever play for, for India again? And, and we might not see him in an, in an Indian shirt again. 
It's interesting you say that, you know, he was looking to use this year's IPL as his platform to bid for a position in that Indian side. I, I, MS Dhoni's an intriguing um, character in that I, I just wonder whether everyone else seems to fuss more about MS Dhoni than MS Dhoni himself. You know, I and I think that's one of his great skills is he is Mr Cool uh, and he has been Mr Cool for a decade and that's been one of the main ingredients to his success is that he just takes every day in his stride and I, I think that everyone clearly has been concerned about what MS Dhoni is going to do with his retirement and announcement of his retirement but everyone else is more concerned, I think, than what MS Dhoni is. Yes, there's two players in Kale Rahul and uh, Punt who are two very good wicketkeeper batsmen and probably Dhoni was thinking, look, if if I absolutely shot the lights out during this IPL, you know, then I have then I've got a decision to make. But I, I don't know. I, you know, I might be wrong, but I don't know whether he's been losing sleep over it. <laughs> he's just one amongst many, and you're talking shortest format of the game. Um, I think there are other guys around the world. I can think of Neil Wagner, who's 34 years of age, whose rise has been phenomenal in international test match cricket over the last couple of years, given what he's done. What what shape is Australia in um, just as a cricketing nation? Because I think India are the deepest team, best position, cross-format. If we have, let's say, a, a prolonged break of international cricket speculation again, with the depth of players, their, their finances, um, Australia can't be too far behind, Tom. What is their their model like in terms of the next couple of years? Look, I think uh, the, their finances have been uh, challenged. What, From my understanding, what I'm reading in the press is that, uh, you know, they have been somewhat hit for six, um, which has surprised a lot of people because, you know, they're, you know, we're not in season, we're out of season, so it's not like they're losing games and crowds and ticket, you know, tickets um, at the gate. But I think Australia, uh, like most boards, uh, forecast their revenue over a period of years and... Last year was considered a reasonably modest year and it was forecast a modest year financially where the coming season against India is forecast, you know, a season where they're going to bear a lot of fruit. Um, And then over a period of four years when they do these forecasts, it all evens out and, you know, they reach their their various targets um, to their bottom line. So I know that the the Australian... um, uh, at Australian Cricket in Melbourne, they have had to make some serious uh, reductions with staff and and pay cuts. I know domestically uh, that's going on as well around Australia. So various domestic sides are having to um, not. I'm not talking about players. I'm talking about the staffing of the administration and coaches and physiotherapists and trainers and what have you are all having a thorough review. And I think there's going to be a 20 or a 30% cut of budgets budgets across the board. Well, their, their playing group would be in good shape as well, but their fast bowlers still 
uh, in good fettle around that 26, 27, 28 yep. uh, sort of year of age, isn't it? Their leadership with campaign, yeah. how significant? Yeah, from a playing perspective, I think we're on the upward curve. Uh, the only interesting point around the, the topic that we're talking about today and, and how this has affected um, the coronavirus and, and, and what it's how it's affected is that Tim Payne is 35, going on 36. Uh, he's done a remarkable job sort of out of nowhere, along with Justin Langer in... in rebuilding Australian cricket after what happened in South Africa with the sandpaper gate. But how much longer has he got as a leader? I would anticipate if we're not playing test cricket, because he's only really playing test cricket for Mm. another six months or more, that's a serious discussion that needs to be had. But I think if Australia managed to have this test series against India, which everyone is clearly pushing for, Tim Payne will be captaining Australia. Another interesting Australian player to mention as well in this is, is Steve Smith, who obviously already lost 12 months of his fantastic career and the peak of his career to the Sandpaper Gate uh, scandal. And now there's more time out of the game for him as well. And, and you, you know, that, that is also a factor for a number of players. You know, I think we've spoken about players towards the end and at the beginning of their career, but you've got to, you know, players in the middle of their career who are perhaps, you know, up and running and just all they want to be doing is playing um, are now losing valuable game time as well. How many runs could Steve Smith have scored in the year that he was out for the sandpaper ban and now in the, what, maybe six months he's going to miss here? Um, that's an interesting thought too. And then another couple of players that I've just noted down as well of note, uh, James Anderson and, and Dale Stain, obviously who we had on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Stain still had aspirations of, of, of uh, winning white ball trophies with South Africa and playing around the world in T20 cricket. Anderson um, as well, trying to prolong his test career. How will this affect them? Maybe it will help them. Maybe the break will, will see them come back refreshed uh, equally. Perhaps time out of the game means when they do return, it's harder to sort of physically get back up to those levels. So there are a number of players at different stages of their career, and we could go on, I'm sure, um, for whom this is going to have significant consequences for. And it will be really interesting to see how and and whether they do return at all, I suppose. Jimmy, let me tell you something, Freddie. You won't know about this just yet, but the older you get into your 30s, the harder it is to <laughs> someone. <laughs> don't laugh, Tom. For someone as fit as Jimmy Anderson at age 37, let me tell you, six months out of the game potentially is like a lifetime. So I hope for his sake that uh, international test cricket resumes soon. Are there any rule changes? This time of introspection, in terms of the administration and, and the ruling of the game, what are the thoughts of, of you gentlemen on, on one thing that you might want to see altered, improved, deleted? Well, what, what one thing that's um, been discussed in the media in the, in the last few months while this has all been going on has been the use of saliva to shine the ball and how that potentially, especially during um, these matches that might be being played uh, whilst the crisis is still going on, whether that's a, a good idea or not, that should still be allowed. Personally, I'm not sure whether it would actually make that much difference given these guys are going to be sharing a dressing room with one another. But um, all the same, it, it's being discussed that you know maybe they can't shine the ball. Potentially, if that was the case, maybe we, we, we could allow bowlers to tamper with the ball 
um, you know, to, to still achieve swing movement. Obviously, this is um, you know, time brings a controversial issue, and I'm, I'm not necessarily saying I fully endorse the idea, but it's something that should be. Um, you know, the balance between bat and ball is often um, a topic of discussion. And in fact, at the moment, ball generally dominates bat. You wonder whether what the scores would be if, if, if bowlers could scratch one side of the ball. But it's something to think about. Um, and you're right; it does. The, the, this period of pause, I suppose, does offer time to think about how we could change the game for the better moving forward. I found it very interesting, uh, Bish, that the internet at Freddie's end just wavered a little bit when he mentioned ball tampering. I'm of the view that, you know, I think if you have everyone that's healthy in a, in a you know, preserved environment, you know, shining the ball as it has been shined for 100 years makes no, certainly makes no difference. Um, so I certainly wouldn't be advocating the the ball tampering side of it, or you know having some alternative um, option to shine the ball. The one thing that I thought that uh, the ICC could think about uh, with regards to a change that's the umpire's call for DRS. It does my head in. I think there it, it's hard. Cricket's a, a complicated game as it is. To as a as a, someone that's just trying to understand the game, to sit down and watch the game and suddenly see someone that gets bowled, that has that, and not bowled LBW when the ball is you know showing through ball tracking technology that it's hitting the stumps, even though it's only hitting just the top of the stumps or the outside of off stump or leg stump, and that to be given not out is very confusing. I just think if it's hitting you're out. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, lower the scores and the averages of batsmen a little further. You won't find any complaints here. Yeah, I will complain, Freddie, that if you do tamper with the ball, where do you start and stop? What's, what's the line that you don't cross when that happens? I'm all for bowlers having an advantage. I think the pitches, as we've seen in the last few years, I'll stress on that again, even in one-day cricket, can assist the bowlers a little bit more. If you're in a, Michael Oling made a good point the other day. He said if you're in a biosecure environment and everyone is tested to ensure that they're clear, should there still be a, an issue with saliva going on the ball? Well, is that a medical question or is that one we can that answer? Was, yeah, that was sort of what I was getting at originally. I don't quite get why that law is being discussed, but if it was, then that's, you know, the tampering one is, is one thing you might consider. Um, another thing as well that just comes to mind, I hate the soft signal for a catch. Like, why? I, I would get rid of that too, because I find it amazing that sometimes an umpire who's standing 75 metres away has a, is, is, gives a soft signal about a catch that we can then see on a replay uh, far more, far better than he can, I, I imagine. Um, I would get rid of that and just let, let us decide whether it's out or not on the, on the replay. That's another rule change I would quite like to see. Yeah, I like that suggestion. You guys are, are becoming more practical rather than this whole traditional thing of trying to keep the umpire in the game. I, I like that. It might have some legs on it. The one thing I'd like to see done differently, it should surprise no one. I've talked about it before. T20 cricket is a batsman-driven format, but some of the better games of T20 that we've seen, uh, those medium-range scores, maybe 150, 116, not the 220, where it seems to be going up and up and up. And the use of the short ball, not to injure anyone, uh, but just the fact that to keep some more, I suppose, conjecture in and over, you're using one short ball now if it's served up early 
then the batsman knows that there can't be a, a varying or significant change of length for the rest of the over. So I'd like to see that increase to two to keep batsmen a little bit more honest. I don't think it'll hamper the game too much. Um, and I can see both Freddie and Tom holding their foreheads saying, Bishop, that was very predictable. No, 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 I like it. I like it because the bouncer is such an interesting delivery and, and I'm sure Freddie knows some stats behind it, particularly in T20 cricket. I've got a vague idea. Ah. Um, but there's a real risk and reward for the bouncer. Um, and to me, if anything, I like what you're saying, if not three and over, because it, it, it can be seen as, you know, why have you bowled that short ball moment yeah. to your fast yeah. bowler that where it ends up out the park over deep backward square for six? Uh, or it can be, as you say, it, it, it creates uh, a moment of uncertainty uh, for uh, what can be a predictable over after one bounce has been bowled. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's the stats is it's it's the ball with the highest economy rate, but also um, apart from I think uh, possibly a half volley, the highest uh, strike rate as well. So you know, it's it's a, a ball on which action happens. It's exciting. Um, often there are runs, top edges, wickets, sixes, fours, batsmen being hit. Um, they're an exciting part of the game. And yeah, I, I'd agree with you. Two, two or three, go for it. <laughs> I'm going for two. It was definitely Moody the batsman that said three, Moody the all-rounder. That's not me, folks. In closing, Tom, just quickly, coaching more difficult during this period? How? Um, I don't think it's more difficult. Um, I think a lot of coaches that are under enormous pressure around the world have had a chance to really recharge, both uh, mentally and physically, rethink around their players individually, their strategy long-term. Um, it's given them a chance to, 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 to speak to their players on a one-on-one -on -one basis, even though it's through a Zoom conference call or whatever it might be uh, on a regular basis. I, I think, if anything, you'll get a lot of coaches um, coming out of this lockdown walking tour. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you very much, Freddie, for your insights. And to our listeners, we hope that you feed on it once again. And any thoughts you have and any differences you have, you can come back to us and you can get us, Freddie, on SoundCloud and... iTunes, Spotify, uh, and follow us on TPSE underscore podcast. And uh, you can access all the other platforms as well. All right. You see, I couldn't do that. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>